Amen. Thank you, Pastor Chad, that prayer of supplication. Now, I'll ask you to go ahead and turn your Bibles to the book of Acts in chapter 21. We'll pick up where we left off. I guess it would be a terrible understatement to say that the Apostle Paul was a man on a mission, but he really was. And that mission guided him, and his mission was to proclaim the good news of the gospel, the name of Jesus Christ, to reach as many people as possible, and particularly the Gentiles. And as we left off uh, previously in the uh, chapter 21, uh, the Apostle Paul and his company, uh, which would include uh, Luke, who is right in the words that we have here in the book of Acts, as well as Timothy and, and some uh, representatives from some of the Gentile churches that are coming with him. And he's making his way to Jerusalem. That's his goal. That's, uh, that's the burning desire of his heart, is to get to Jerusalem where he looks forward to delivering this uh, offering, this love offering that's been collected through the uh, regions that Paul has been preaching and planting churches. And the Gentiles have so generously and faithfully collected this offering. And they're not only sending the offering through the Apostle Paul, but they're sending representatives from their churches. And you'll see that uh, spoken of later in the text this morning. But, you know, Paul is making his way there with an awareness. And we brought this out last time. It's not like Paul is walking blindly into Jerusalem thinking it's going to be a picnic and it's going to be a ticker tape parade and he's going to be a hero and that type of thing. Because as as early as chapter 20, Paul's been getting warnings uh, himself from the Holy Spirit. That, that there's trials and, and there's tribulation and there's chains and, and, uh, and all kinds of hardship. He's, he's gotten warnings from fellow Christians, uh, uh, there in, in Syria as he, as he landed there in that region making his way to Jerusalem. And he's even gotten a warning from a prophet that came and, and very dramatically demonstrated what was going to happen to him once he came to Jerusalem. But nonetheless, Paul persist in going to Jerusalem because this is what God has impressed upon his heart to do. And so we pick up in chapter 21 in verse 17 at the arrival of Paul and his crew, if you will, his traveling companions in the city of Jerusalem. And so let's let's begin reading there in chapter 21 verse 17 and when he had come to Jerusalem the brethren received us gladly that's Luke writing that the that the believers in Jerusalem received Paul and Luke and all the ones traveling with Paul very gladly on the following day Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present now it's interesting to note that here in contrast to earlier in the book of acts you don't hear reference of the other apostles the church of Jerusalem now is under the leadership of James the Apostle. He's the only apostle that we see reference to here. But also the church has elected for itself, along with James, a group of pastors, elders. And it's to James and the elders of the church of Jerusalem that Paul is going to be relating at this point, all the other apostles evidently have made their way out of the city of Jerusalem and on in their own missions and ministries. In verse 19, when he had greeted them, he told them in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And look at verse 20, the first part of it. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. They, they glorified 
the Lord. As Paul is telling them that out there in the far reaches of the Roman Empire, in the areas that's predominantly Gentile, where he's been preaching the good news of the gospel, he has it has fallen on receptive ears and hearts, and Gentiles uh, by the hundreds, by the thousands, are being saved, and churches are being planted, and the church of Jesus is expanding, and the kingdom of God is advancing, and so there's great rejoicing, and they're praising the Lord. So, first I want you to see, as Paul enters into the city, and you're talking about contrasting situations and emotions. It's like a roller coaster. Because the first thing we see represented in the Word of God that Luke shares is, is, is a praise that is briefly celebrated. Because we get the uh, impression that as Paul comes, everybody's welcoming him. All the believers are greeting him warmly. And when he has opportunity the next day to meet with the leaders of the church and share all the details, uh, uh, there's great celebration. And so there's a real positive high note at this point. And, and the things that they're celebrating, this, this praise, if you will, is first of all, it's the return. It represents the return of a veteran missionary. Because, you see, they haven't seen Paul in a while since the last time he came into Jerusalem. And so they know he's been out in the far reaches of Gentile territory. And, and they've been anticipating his coming again. I dare say it wasn't a secret. Uh, the word going ahead of him. Paul's coming to town. Paul's coming to town. So the Jerusalem church is celebrating the presence of the one that they uh, so dearly love. Now, I think it's interesting. Because many of these early Christians in Jerusalem, initially, as you recall, Paul was a persecutor of the church. Oh, how time changes things. And now, instead of running from him and fleeing for their lives, they're, they're singing praises and, 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 and embracing him and all. Oh, and as Paul is, is, is sharing, this is a festive time as Paul is giving his report about how fruitful the ministry has been among the Gentiles I would remind you that this is a festive time in the city of Jerusalem. He's arriving intentionally at the time of the uh, Feast of Pentecost, which is one of the major uh, Jewish feasts that's observed in the city of Jerusalem. And the Feast of Pentecost is known as the Feast of the of the Weeks. It's a it's a feast to celebrate the Jews did the giving of the Law of Moses. It's a a feast to to celebrate the first fruits of the harvest. And so I thought it was timely that Paul was coming to say, here are the first fruits of the efforts of, of, of the gospel among the Gentiles. And so they're, they're celebrating that. But you know, Pentecost, folks, it was, it's like 48 days after Easter, 48 to 50 days after Easter. So, uh, I guess somewhere in May, I think May 24th, I think I saw, uh, it would be the Sunday of Pentecost. So let's not forget that. You say, well, why? It's not a big deal. We're not Jewish. Well, you know what? Have you forgotten the fact that it was on that first Pentecost? The church was born. It's the birthday of the church. I do believe that maybe the early Christians there in Jerusalem didn't forget that. They remember that first Pentecost from Peter and, and James and John and Andrew and all the disciples with the other hundred plus people that were gathered in that place there in Jerusalem. And, and the Spirit of God fell down upon them. And there was a great evidence of the power of God in the speaking of uh, foreign languages and, and the healing of the lame and, and the proclamation of the word boldly. Oh, listen, what a, what a day that was when the church was born. So who's to say 
They didn't have a party or something to celebrate the birthday of the church. But anyway, it's a festive time. And, and Paul coming to town and sharing this great report. And, and he's received warmly by the uh, people there. But also, don't forget, I shared with you, Paul is not traveling alone. He's intentionally bringing representatives from the Gentile churches throughout Galatia, uh, Asia, Europe. So he's got representatives from Ephesus and, and Galatia and Thessalonica. And, and so the, the church, we're told, you know, they're receiving not only Paul, but they're embracing their Gentile brothers. And that's significant because it speaks to the unity of the body of Christ. And so this is a, a wonderful time. It's a celebrating time. But also, I'm sure we can't overlook the fact, even though Luke doesn't give a lot of attention to the offering, you don't see anything referred to uh, the offering. It was a big deal to Paul. You, he wrote in his letters to the church at Corinth and, and church at Thessalonica. He was reminding them of the importance of them giving this offering to help. And so I'm sure a part of the celebration was the fact that here comes Paul with this very generous love offering from their Gentile. Now, I emphasize that. This was an offering that was collected by new believers in Gentile churches to help with the, the needs of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. It was significant for two reasons. Number one, they needed it. When you broke, you know, a gift of money comes in handy. And so, you know, because of the persecution that they had been subjected to, because of the, the uh, famine that, that had uh, come across the land of Palestine, the, the Jewish believers there in, in Jerusalem were suffering. They had financial needs, they had physical needs. And so this offering was very timely. And so Paul knew that. And so uh, they're celebrating, I'm sure, that this offering. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 20, about this offering, he calls it a lavish offering. So it wasn't just a little few, you know, chump change that he dropped in the offering plate. This was a substantial amount of money to help the, so this, this generous offering spoke volumes about the depth of the love and the commitment of the Gentile believers to their Jewish Christian brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. But even more important, I think even more important to the Apostle Paul, this offering not only helped with financial and physical needs, but it helped to unify the church. Because this was a bold statement made early on in the life of the church by Gentile believers to their Jewish brothers and sisters, look, we are in this thing together. The diversity of the church was coming together and there was celebration over the unity that this offering represented uh, at that time. You know, I think about the diversity of the, the church today. And I know we talked about that at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is, is probably one of the most segregated hours in our culture today in America. Uh, and, but that I think a lot of times is preference, people's preference for styles of worship. But, you know, I know when we go out doing evangelism and knocking on doors, it doesn't matter the color of the skin of an individual that we knock on this, the, the door. We want everybody, irregardless of their race, irregardless of their background, their education level or financial or economic status. Listen, everybody is welcome into this church. You understand? 
And, and so uh, the diversity is something to celebrate. And I believe the church is grasping this early on at this time. And, you know, as, as high a, a, a note of celebration and as positive as, as this time is, it shouldn't surprise us one bit to know that when the church is celebrating, the adversary is hard at work planning how he can disrupt that celebration. It's, it, it, and certainly Satan is always looking for opportunities to derail the church, to disillusion the church, and disappoint and discourage the church. Not just in the first century, ladies and gentlemen. He does it today. He, You can just about count on when things are going good in your life and God is doing great things in your life, whether it be individually or your family or in the church. Brace yourself. Because our de- our adversary, the devil, is not sitting idly by. And nor was he sitting idly by at this time. That's why I say this was a praise that was briefly celebrated. And we'll see that as we progress further here in, in the book of Acts. Begin with, with me there again in verse 20. Because I want to share with you a plot that was wickedly concocted. Just as we see a praise briefly Celebrated, we're about to witness a plot that is wickedly concocted. And they said to him, this would be the James and the leaders at the church of Jerusalem, the elders, said to Paul, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you, that you teach all Jews who are among the Gentiles, that is, Jews who are spread out from Jerusalem with the uh, diaspora, uh, all those Jews who are among the Gentiles, it's been told to us that you're teaching these Jews to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk accordingly or according to customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet. For they will hear that you have come. In other words, they're saying, Paul, listen, listen, before we get too carried away with our celebration, we just need you to be aware of something. The word's out there. There's been vicious, horrible rumors that have been started out, out among the Jews that you are not a supporter of the law and, and, and that you're not encouraging. In fact, you're telling Jews not to have their children circumcised. And so we just want you to be aware. That the word is out there that you are anti-Jew. And, and with the fact that you have arrived in the city of Jerusalem, it's no doubt that all the Jews know that you're here. Not only that, but the assembly, speaking of the Sanhedrin, they probably have a special call meeting even at this time because they know that you're here. So they're, they're just making Paul aware. Of course, Paul knows this, but they're just sharing with him a concern that they have over his presence there in the midst of the church. Verse 23, Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expense so that they may shave their heads and that they they may all may know that, that, I'm sorry, that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing. In other words, they're false. But that you yourself also walk according or orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, 
We have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things that are strangled, and from sexual immorality. So in this time, this time of tension, the leaders of the church are wisely giving Paul counsel with precautions that they feel would be necessary for him. If, if, there's, if there are rumors out there, Paul, that you are against the law of Moses and you're discouraging Jews from being faithful to the law and that you are against uh, the Moses and the Mosaic law and the temple and Judaism, then you need to demonstrate that you are still a supporter of the traditions of Judaism. And so they, they offer this plan for him, and it fits with the philosophy that Paul practiced himself even when he's out among the churches. Hold your place there. Let me just direct your attention to what he wrote to the church at Corinth. Listen to what Paul said about himself and his tactics of ministering to different people. In 1 Corinthians in chapter 9, we find this in verse 19. The apostle Paul, and he's speaking of himself, he says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. And to those who are without the law, speaking of Gentiles, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under the law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. So Paul was already accustomed to being flexible. He would adapt to whatever situation he was in. He was willing to adapt to whatever people group he was in. He never compromised his convictions. He never compromised his faith. But he was always willing to adapt wherever it would promote the spread of the gospel and bring people. So they're trying to cast Paul in a favorable light among the Jewish people gathered in Jerusalem. It's interesting because they already have four young Christian men who are of Jewish descent. Who are going to, who have taken the Nazarite vow, which is a very sacred vow out of the Old Testament, you may recall, when a young man decided to take the Nazarite vow as a vow of consecration, uh, consecration and setting himself apart for God. Uh, it, it would take about 30 days. And it involved, you know, fasting and setting aside your, you, you wouldn't do certain things, drink alcohol, uh, have sexual relationships. Were, and, and then it, it, it culminated in the shaving of the head. And, and offering offerings in the temple. Now these men are Christians, but they are dedicated Jews. Uh, they're dedicated to the Jewish traditions. And so they've taken the Nazarite vow, and so the church leaders are saying to Paul, listen, let's, let's defuse this, this time bomb, if you will. If you'll just simply go and be their sponsor. Now Paul couldn't actually participate in the full rituals because he was not observing the, the 30 day period for the Nazarite vow, but the law allowed for those who would celebrate with the uh, uh, the uh, persons taking the vow. They could go through a week of purification themselves and then be able to go into the temple to celebrate with those who were devoted to the, the Nazarite vow. And so they're saying, Paul, do this. And in, in doing so, this will be a favorable, uh, this will put you in a favorable light among the Jews who are here in Jerusalem. And it would dispel some of the vicious rumors that have been spread out there in, uh, in, in, in the Roman Empire about you. So, everything seems to be in place. 
But you know, I think it's interesting. I don't want to leave verse 25 without pointing out the church leaders there in Jerusalem, even though they said there's nothing wrong with encouraging or allowing Jewish Christians to observe Jewish traditions. It's a cultural thing. There's nothing wrong with that. The church never, never advocated Jews stop being Jews, even though they were Christians. They could still come to the temple to worship. They could still come and participate in the prayers. They could do things like the Nazarite vow. They could make offerings if they so chose to do that. But, but they never said Jews had to stop being Jewish, even though they were Christians. But the, but the church leaders in verse 25 says, But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing. What they're basically doing is saying, But having said this, we never stipulate that Gentiles need to do these Jewish traditions in order to be a part of the church. They don't have to worry about keeping the festivals and the feasts and, and doing Nazarite vows and, and, uh, and, and the cultural things that Jews did. So they wanted to make sure that the Gentiles were not under that obligation. You may recall back in chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas came back to Jerusalem because this was an issue. When the Gentiles were first being reached with the gospel, there was a lot of pressure by some of the Jewish believers to make the Gentiles be circumcised and, and, and go through the rituals of Judaism. And, and the church in, wisely in council said, no, this is not necessary. They've been saved by grace. They're covered by the blood of Christ. And that's all that they need is their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the church is reemphasizing that right there. So now with this scenario put in place, Paul is going to be going to the temple with these four men that he's sponsoring financially for, because they had to pay to have their head shaved just the right way to offer their hair in the offering and, and, and for the cost of their offering. This, so everything is put in place and he's going to the temple with these men. Let's pick up in verse 26 because we'll see how fast the enemy is ready to launch an attack. Verse 26, then Paul took them in and the, uh, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification. In other words, related to their Nazarite vow. At which time an offering should be made for each of each one of them, which Paul underwrote financially. And when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him, Paul, in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, uh, the law, and this place, speaking of the temple. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed, and I emphasize supposed, that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed. And the people ran together and seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, primarily out of the Jewish court of the temple. They dragged him out of that portion of the temple and immediately the doors were shut. Now, as they were seeking to kill him, excuse me, did anybody see anything about Paul being read his rights? Uh, did, did anybody see anything in here about a trial? Did anybody hear anything from a judge declaring him 
<laughs> this, this is a mob, folks. This is not a legal proceeding. And, and it reminds us of what we saw it with Stephen. Verse 31. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. So you see, right away, they began to launch these false accusations against, against Paul. Who's behind it? Naturally, the, the Jews are, those who are against the church and against Paul and against his, his proclamation of the gospel. But folks, behind that, who's behind it? Who's behind rumors? Who's behind falsehood? Could I remind you that in Jesus' earthly ministry in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus nailed the enemy right on the head. He was talking to the Jews, the Jewish leaders then. He says, you're full of lies. And the reason you're full of lies, he's talking to the Jewish leaders, is because you're father. You're, you're daddy. Speaking of the devil. He's the father of lies. So, so rumors come from the father of lies. So Satan has, has instigated this mob, if you will, based on pure false accusations. Because everything they say to the people, stirring up the people, that he teaches all men everywhere there in verse 28, against the people. In other words, Paul's not anti-Jew. He never, he never has been speaking against the Jewish. They're his people. Paul gave his life, you know, or risked his life taking the gospel back to his own people. He made this statement, I would, I would willingly give up my salvation if it meant that the Jews as a people would be saved. Oh, listen, Paul never stopped loving his people, the Jews, because he himself was a Jew. So they said that he's against the, the, the Jews. He's against the law. Paul wasn't against the law. He simply said that the law can't save you. The law makes us aware of the fact that we are sinners and that we are in need of a Savior. We're in need of the grace of God. He, he wasn't against the law. He wasn't against the temple. Yet they said, hey, he, he hates this place. He wants to destroy this place. Hey, and, and, and so, oh, you're talking about the big three right there. To a Jew, when you begin to, to, to berate the, the law, and you begin to berate Moses, you begin to berate the temple, oh, listen, you're in big trouble. They, that's exactly what they're attempting to do. And if that wasn't good enough, why don't we just make up something? I know that doesn't happen out there amongst Christians and Christianity today, but, you know, when you're upset with somebody and you really want to, you, you, you're jealous about how well God is blessing them and how good, uh, why not just make up something? You know, a half truth. That's what they did. They said, oh, he's bringing these, these Gentiles. And they spoke of, of Trophimus, the representative that came with Paul from Ephesus. And, and they saw Paul and, and, and Trophimus and the other Gentiles in the city. Luke pointed that out. Luke in verse 29 wanted to make sure he clarified that. Just because they saw Paul with Gentiles in the city of Jerusalem, well, they just went ahead and jumped to conclusions. Not only has he got them in the city, he's bringing them into the, the, the temple, of the, 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 the court of the Jews. He's defiling the temple with these nasty Gentiles. And he's inciting the crowd into a murderous mob. I won't take you back to chapter 6, but I'm sure it still is strong in your mind. A young, devout, 
very articulate preacher by the name of Stephen stood boldly and faced down the Hellenist Jews in arguing from the Scriptures how Christ was indeed the Messiah. And they couldn't argue with Him. They couldn't debate with Him because the Scripture says He was filled with the Spirit of God. He was empowered by the Word of God. And they realized they were no contest in a debate with this young man. So why not make up lies? And that's exactly what they did with Stephen. He hates the law. He hates Moses. He hates the temple. And the crowd was incited and they dragged Stephen outside of the the gates and they stoned him to death. You see how Satan's tactics are so consistent? Oh, go back even before Stephen. Go back into the gospel in the latter parts of any of the gospels where Jesus... How was it that they got Jesus to the cross? It was through lies. It was through rumors. It was through half-truths. It was through false witnesses. It was through a kangaroo court where people's emotions were so worked up that they lost all sense of reason. And so this is what is happening. Now, it's interesting here as we see this whole chaotic, dangerous explosive situation developing there in the temple court. It's like the old expression, big brother's watching. Historians tell us that high on a precipice above the city of Jerusalem, at a strategic point, was the Roman garrison that was housed in Fort Antonia. Over 1,600 soldiers and cavalry. They were there to keep the peace in the strategic city of Jerusalem. Not only was the fort located at this precipice that had a bird's eye view of the city of Jerusalem, but they had watchtowers along the walls and watchmen on these in these towers. And they saw right down, in, they had a, a very pivotal view of the temple complex. Why? Because if anything was going to break bad in Jerusalem, it was going to be in, in, in the vicinity of the temple. And so they're watching. Not only this, anytime there's a feast in Jerusalem, whether it be Passover, Pentecost, listen, they know those Jews. They know they come in all zealous and pumped up. If there's going to be a riot, more than likely, it'll be during the time of the feast. So when this riot is breaking out, this mob is developing, then it didn't take long. I imagine up on the hillside, up in that watchtower, the alarm was going off. They didn't have an electronic alarm. They probably had something like the Flintstones. They pull a big bird's tail. And they go, Rawr! Rawr! <laughs> and, they, and, and, and they were telling the commander, this, and all of Jerusalem is on fire. It's about to explode down there. Now, when you tell the commander there's, the whole city's in an uproar and his whole livelihood depends on keeping the peace, listen, he doesn't call down and say, hey, can you tell me? No, no, no. He doesn't send somebody to check it out. He rounds up a lot of soldiers. How do we know it's a lot of soldiers? Because Luke tells us in verse 32, he immediately took soldiers and not one centurion, you may recall, a centurion is a leader of a hundred troops. He didn't take one centurion. He took centurions plural, which means he had multiple hundreds, 200 plus 
Roman soldiers and they ran down those steps down to the temple complex to the city of Jerusalem. And when they, and, and it says, and when they, the Jews, saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. That's a convenient time to stop if you're doing something illegal, you know? But folks, you know, just as the devil is working diabolically behind the scene, don't forget that our Father who has the best viewpoint, who is in charge, God is providential. He knew that Paul was going to go into Jerusalem. He knew that there would be an uproar. He knew that Paul would take a beating. Imagine when Paul gets to heaven. He said, Lord, couldn't somebody else have gotten a few of those beatings along the way? But anyway, he knew all this was going to transpire. And he knew that if he wanted to save the life of his faithful servant for future service, better get a lot of troops there in a hurry. And he did. And so we see the, the cavalry comes on the scene. And so I want you to see, as we read further, a prophecy fulfilled completely because, you know, we see from verse 32 to verse 36 how what was prophesied by the prophet Agabus earlier in Caesarea is actually coming to be right now. In verse 32, he immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came near and took him, Paul, and commanded him to be bound with two chains, just like Agabus said. And he asked, he asked who, who he was and, and what he had done. So he's just trying, all he knows is a riot and this poor guy is getting beat like, you know, a criminal. And so he's trying to find out. He's thinking, this has got to be a bad guy. If one guy is creating this commotion, he's got to be some kind of a criminal. So he's asking. And some among the multitude cried one thing, and some said another. That's chaos and confusion for you. And when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. And when he reached the stairs... He had to be carried by the soldiers. Folks, they were, the, the people were so angry. They were so bloodthirsty. They were so murderous that they were trying to reach and claw and to try to get to Paul. And the soldiers were having to carry Paul, you know, uh, probably over the shoulders. They literally carried him to the steps to get him out of the sea of the mass of confusion and violence. So when they reached the steps... In verse 40, no, 36, for the multitude of the people followed after. So they're, they're still following the soldiers, following Paul. And, and, and they're saying, away with him. Translated, kill him. Kill him. Kill him. What do they say to Stephen? Kill him. Kill him. Kill him. What do they say? The crowd gathered before Pontius Pilate's porch there. What do they say about Jesus? Kill him. Kill him. Now let's put him on trial. Let's see. No, let's, let's get rid of him. Kill him. Kill him. Kill him. Why would you say these things were happening? You know, back in Acts in chapter 20, earlier in chapter 20, Paul says, you know, I, I, I've been warned by the Spirit of God. I'm going to Jerusalem and there I will face tribulation and I will face chains. He was warned by disciples on his way to Jerusalem. He was warned by the prophet Agabus on his way to Jerusalem. Was the Spirit of God trying to stop Paul? No. 
If he wanted to stop Paul from going to Jerusalem, he could have stopped him. He stopped him before. He could have stopped him then. So why was the Spirit continually giving Paul these warnings along the way? I believe it was to test his resolve. If he was going to be the prophet to the Gentiles that Jesus had called him to be, all the way back then, Acts chapter 9. If he was going to stand before, before judges and, and governors or emperors, how strong would his faith be? I believe Jesus was testing Paul just to see if his faith was strong, or to let Paul see how strong his faith was, to let the church see how strong his faith was. Sometimes God allows some pretty hefty trials to come into the lives of his people who claim to be his followers today. And he's not trying to trip you up. He's not trying to tempt you. The scripture says God doesn't tempt But God will test. And I believe sometimes God will allow things to come into the life of a believer that are painful, that are hard, that we just don't understand as a way of testing, knowing what He's got planned in the future for us, knowing that that He's got a calling on our lives and it's going to take great faith. And that's why it so disturbs me when I hear the health and prosperity preachers on television saying they are opposite. And saying, oh, listen, if you're a true follower of the Lord, then your health's going to be good. And if you're really true and sincere in your faith, then you're going, to get, you're going to be wealthy. You're going to have lots of money. You'll never have to worry about money. That's a lie. That's a lie because the Bible tells us there will be times of testing. Listen to the Apostle James. He spelled it out very plainly. Most of you know this by heart. Paul, James is writing to those early believers who are facing these trials. He said, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect, in other words, mature and strong and complete and lacking nothing. So in the face of the trials, the hardships, the pain, the things that, that aren't God disciplining you, but God allowing to come into your life, rather than get angry at God, rather than go around wringing your hands, be still in the presence of God and say, Lord, I sense you're allowing me to walk through this fiery trial. I sense that you're allowing me to face this hardship or, or this painful time. Lord, I, I pray that I will be faithful. I pray that I will be patient. I pray that I will wait and persevere. And I'll wait that, I pray that my faith will be, be made stronger for whatever it is you have in store for me beyond this. And it's interesting as we prepare to close. It's, you know, we were meeting Friday night here at the church for the secret church. A very, very powerful time of intense Bible teaching started at 7 o'clock and I think I got home about 2.30 in the morning. We got two breaks along the way, but that, that Dr. David Platt, president of the International Mission Board, speaks like a machine gun. But we learned a whole lot but it was interesting as I was studying this, this scripture and, 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 and it, he made it known, Pastor Tim was telling me that before, just before this broadcast, this simulcast was supposed to happen. And, and Dr. Platt is speaking, teaching very counter culture. He's boldly proclaiming truths from the word of God that go absolutely in the face of the current pagan culture in which we live. He was 
speaking and preaching and teaching from the Scriptures against homosexuality, against abortion on demand, and many other things that are eroding our culture today. And you don't think that... Look, if the devil didn't stand idly by and let Paul come into town... He's surely not going to stand idly by and let somebody as knowledgeable and as convicted as Dr. Platt carry on that way. And so very serious threats were made against him, Dr. Platt, and against the church, a big church, where they were going to hold the simulcast. So serious, in fact, that at last, at last moment's decision, they moved the simulcast itself away from the church to protect that congregation. This is the enemy, folks. This is the mentality and the sentiment of the enemy today. He's engineering groups of, of, of people that are sinful, that are very evil, and they are very vicious in their attacks, and they target those who practice biblical Christianity. And we need to look to Paul in times like this. We need to look to Paul. Oh, by the way, the simulcast was done successfully from a secret location, undisclosed location. So we really were secret church Friday night. And I dare say, probably all future secret church broadcasts will be secret. That's a sign of the times. But I want you to see in the last verses, verses 37 through 40, that Paul didn't raise a white flag. He didn't fret. He didn't stand and, 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 and just blast the Jews. He didn't curse them and, 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 bring, and call down fire upon their heads. Though some of us probably would have said, you need to, Paul. Look at verse 37. And as Paul was about to be led into the barracks up at Fort Antonia, he said to, to the commander, may I speak to you? He replied, can you speak Greek? Uh, and, and, and this caught the, the commander off guard because most of the common people there in Jerusalem and in Palestine spoke Aramaic. Anybody speaking Greek was obviously a, a, an educated person, a learned person, a person who, who was, you know, had, had culture. So that got the commander's attention. And, and look what he asked Paul in verse 38. Are, are you not the Egyptian who some time ago raised an instru- uh, uh, insurrection or a riot? and led 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness. You see, immediately when he came down, he saw the, like I told you, the, 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 the tumult and, and the riot and the mob, and everybody was beating on this one man. He thought, aha, we caught the Egyptian. See, there was a group of terrorists, Jewish terrorists, who were committed to overthrowing the Roman Empire. And, and the, the one fellow that was leading this was known as the Egyptian Osama bin Laden. And, and so he, he's, he's leading as many as 4,000 others. And, and it's interesting, the, the term that Luke uses to describe this group of terrorists, the assassins, it literally means dagger. They were very stealthful in how they worked. They, they would mingle into crowds. Kind of like Boston Marathon bombers. They didn't mass up an army and go against. They were very stealthful and they would go in among the crowd with these long, sharp daggers. And they would single out Romans. They would single out supporters, sympathizers of the Roman Empire. And they'd just come up behind you real quietly. Like, like you know, and, and, and 
Before you know it, you had a sword in your, in your liver. And they just quietly slide on out. And they're wreaking havoc. And, and so the Roman commanders think, oh, we got him, we got him. This, this has got to be the assassin, the Egyptian. Paul says in verse 39, no, no I'm a Jew from Tarsus in, in Cilicia. A citizen of a, a no mean city. And that doesn't mean that they're bad, okay? <laughs> Not like, you know, uh, in a city somewhere. He said, this is not a small town I'm from. He says, I'm from Tarsus. Tarsus has a university. Tarsus has a university that rivals Athens and, and Corinth. So, we, look, I'm, I'm not just, you know, a simple guy. I'm, I'm not from just Roxburgh. <laughs> he said, I'm a citizen of an important town. And I, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. Man, if that was me, and they'd just been beating me nearly to death, I said, get me out of here, please. <laughs> Take me out of here. But Paul says, could I, could I just have a chance to talk to the people? And you know, the, com- the commander is impressed. So when he had given permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. Now look, folks, this is a miracle. And when there was a great silence, I guess they're thinking, this guy's crazy. I want to hear what he's got to say. He's going to stand here after we nearly killed him and he wants to talk to us. And not only that, this is the wisdom that Paul uses in his circumstances under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. These are all Jews. So he cuts off the Greek. That's why it's good to have more than one language. See? That's Spanish. Okay. Yes. That's all I know. Um, but Paul, Paul had, he, he had the wisdom to stop speaking the Greek that impressed the commander and go to the Hebrew that got the attention of the people and that silence grew even greater silent. So his incarceration now becomes a pulpit. And you know, the Apostle Peter talking to early Christians in in 1 Peter chapter 3, he's telling them that they will face hard times He's, t- he's telling them that they will face times of suffering. And, and, and he says, you know, through these fiery times of trial, uh, if you go back and read in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, through uh, chapter 4, verse 14, Peter's saying, use that opportunity. Use that. He says, sanctify the Lord God in your heart. And always be ready, no matter what. Always be ready to give a, a defense to those who ask you a reason for the hope that is in you, no matter what's going on in your life, be ready to tell them about the hope and it's, that is in you. And Paul says, uh, Peter says, do it in meekness and in fear. Don't arrogantly look down your nose when people are treating you bad and, 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 and spitefully and talking about you and spreading rumors about you. And, and, and you know, look for an opportunity to share Christ with them. That's what Paul is about to do. And we'll see that. So I ask you this morning, where, where does God have you? How, how, is, how is the culture treating you? If, you? if you tell me, you know what? I, I, I'm going along good. Everybody likes me. I, I've not come up across any opposition. Everything's just going along just smoothly. I would question, I would, I would challenge you to question the sincerity of your Christian faith.
Because I know the tenets of our faith and I know the culture in which we live. And I stand here today to tell you that if you are truly, boldly telling the truth of what the gospel is and what the Bible stands for, there's no way in the world that everybody is going to like you and like what you stand for. You are going to encounter resistance. They may not beat you up. They may not try to kill you. But I'm just telling you, you stand for the Lord as Paul did. There will be resistance. Be ready. Sanctify the Lord God in your heart. And be ready as the Apostle Paul is now to share the gospel.